This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and uh, I had the awesome experience of being able to interview Julius Irving. Yes, that Julius Irving, Dr. J. It was a really great experience. He was very kind and gracious and uh, gave some what I think were really some thoughtful answers. Uh, I'm really excited to hear, let you hear the uh, conversation. I think it's really, it was all that I could have dreamed of it. You know, when I started this podcast with Rich a couple of years ago, you know, this is the type of thing that I wanted to eventually get into. Hopefully, we'll be able to do uh, more player interviews and, and be able to look at the history of the game in different ways than we've been doing so far. So, um, uh, thanks to everyone who has uh, supported the show. Uh, thanks especially to Ian Levy, uh, the editor of The Step Back, who's been a big supporter of ours and helped us get this interview. Uh, thanks to everyone who's uh, listened to any of our uh, podcasts. Uh, Rich and I appreciate your support, and it's through you know um, supporting us or participating or whatever that's enabled us to do this uh, today. So uh, without further ado, here's the interview. You are probably the person most responsible for making – the NBA All-Star Weekend into a, a huge event with you know, your performance in the uh, 1976 ABA Dunk Contest, you know, the, the legend that was created from that. Uh, how, how do you feel about that as an important part of your legacy? Well, uh, I, I think when they always use that as a reference and it's, you know, 40 plus years and it's in color <laughs> versus black and white, <laughs> then, uh, and it makes it modern enough uh, that you know today's audience could could relate to it. And um, you know, I mean, I I feel good. I feel uh, relevant. I think um, you know, one thing you would hate to have happen is for you know people to forget you, <clears throat> and they probably could forget you, but as long as they remember your work. Uh, and that's a good thing. It's one of the things that drives us and, and, and it allows us to be inspirational to others uh, if your work can be remembered because we want other people to feel the same way about their work. You know, obviously the, the the dunk, you know, being such a uh, important part of your career and the artistry that you put into your dunks. You know, when you're judging a dunk contest or just watching a game and um, you know seeing a great dunk, what aspects of a dunk you know impress you? Um, a couple things. You know, uh, I think the efficiency of it. Um, if they can uh, spike it, as you say. Uh, you know, and having that that impact ball going through, maybe uh, you know having contact with the uh, the back part of the rim or whatever angle they're coming in from, you know, slamming it hard with the majority of the ball being below the rim uh, when they when they spike it, it, it makes a uh, thunderous sound. It's like a kaboom, and uh, people usually react to that. So. Uh, 
you know, rubbins, I'm not too partial to rubbins. And, uh, you know, somebody going very finesseful with a dunk, but the uh, the impactful, the thunderous, you know, coming down, you know, from heaven uh, dunk, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with those. And then, the, obviously, the creativity associated with the effort. And, um, and you know, you get points for your landing. if you land if you land and sprain an ankle that dunk's not gonna look too good (laughs) so so you need to learn if you're gonna be a dunker you need to learn how to land (laughs) so a lot of your early career in the aba isn't available on video i mean there are there are some clips of the aba on youtube for you know, a person like me who wasn't around to experience it, but has, you know, read about the legends and, you know, has seen interviews and that sort of thing. Uh, what do you think people should remember about the ABA? Well, I, I think the stats, uh, it would be, it would be very uh, useful uh, for accuracy stake uh, in terms of what people's accomplishments were. If there was a merger of the stats, so forever now, you know, we've we've kind of uh, desired to have that done and talk to David Stern about it, talk to Adam Silver about it, and you know, nobody's been able to really deliver on the the promise um, that I think came with the uh, you know the merging of the four teams into the league and the disbanding of the the other teams. You know, when I when I came into pro basketball, the ABA had nine teams, and the uh, NBA had fourteen teams. And there was a there was a fight for the talent coming out of college. And I I, I don't think the college talent recognized that uh, there would be such prejudice and bias against the ABA long term big picture that that exists and. Um, you know, it's not totally wiped off of the face of the earth, but it is void, devoid of, you know, being uh, acknowledged uh, the way that, you know, for, for personal interest and the interests of, you know, my, my ABA brother, uh, the way that it should be recognized. The ABA was known for having a lot of great forwards. Um, yourself, of course, Rick Barry, Roger Brown, Doug Moe, George Gervin and George McGinnis, guys like that. Um, who did you really enjoy playing against, and, and who were some of the guys that you sort of you know measured yourself against uh, during those years? Well, I think uh, Joe Caldwell was one of the guys. Um, Joe was, uh, you know, I think the year I averaged twenty eight points against the league. I averaged about twenty four against him <laughs> <laughs> personally, and um, Willie Wise was probably the best two way forward. Played for Utah. And um, you know Willie was Willie was a load, uh, and he just you know he just kind of disappeared uh, once it was gone. Once he once the league folded, uh, Larry Keenan was awesome. Man, I had him as a teammate. Played against him as a uh, when he was with the Spurs. Uh, so just name a few guys. Those those were guys. Will Jones, Kentucky, Caldwell's brother, older brother. 
in the uh, 1976 ABA Finals, you were the first player to lead your team in points, rebounds, assists, and steals, and blocks in a final series before LeBron uh, did it last year. Uh, did you think at all about that when you watched his performance, and, and how important was it to you as a player to you know contribute in all aspects of the game? Well, um, the responsibility that I had uh, during my years with the Nets uh, was never really duplicated after that. Uh, and it didn't happen before. Even in Virginia, it was different. So I spent two years in Virginia and then the three years with the Nets with Kevin Lockery coaching. And, um, you know, he had such trust and faith in, in me. Lots of times, you know, we'd have a game plan and, you know, we'd look up and we're down by eight or ten points or whatever. And, you know, he'd just look and say, you know, you got to make something happen. And that was like a green light, you know, going off. And inside of my body saying, okay, get into go mode and make something happen. And, uh, you know, that type of freedom for any player, I, I kind of, it's interesting. I can see it with Steph Curry to a degree, uh, you know, playing with that type of joy and happiness and, you know, um, coach just saying, okay, you know, it's your time to turn it up <laughs> and, and, and having that happen. Uh, so, um, so when I think back to, you know, to that particular finals, I mean, I wasn't even aware that I had led the team in all those, all those categories. Um, but I knew, you know, it was, uh, it was a tremendous finals. It was the last year of the ABA, the last game, uh, by the ABA, uh, wrapped up when we wrapped up that series against the Nuggets and, you know, they had Dan Issel, Hall of Famer, and, and David Thompson, Hall of Famer. They had Bobby Jones, who should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, it's it's just, uh, it's, just uh, it's just a shame that the same time they talked about LeBron doing it, they probably should have given us a mention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think that the ABA's history, as you talked about, with the records not being integrated and, um, you know, there's a certain, you know, the colorful aspects of the ABA, I think, are appreciated to a certain level, but just the you know, number of great players who played and just the, the level and, you know, competitive nature of the league from everything I've you know read and, and can see, uh, maybe there's not quite enough appreciation for that. You know, the the, uh, the there is there isn't enough appreciation of it and um but the aba exists in the nba today i mean all the things that they do in terms of how they promote and market games in terms of you know the feature of the three-point shot the three referees uh the uh you know the dunk contests you know i mean these are all things the up-tempo game the fact that a little guy could excel in the league uh, like, uh, you know, Isaiah Thomas up in, in Boston. And um, the, uh, the the ABA provided that opportunity for Matt Calvin and Billy Keller and and, and others uh, who, you know, came out of college and had good creds and uh, were looking for a place to play and parked their games right over, right over in the ABA and fared well and, and you know, made uh, all-star teams and all-pro teams. And uh, and the NBA wasn't 
uh, giving guys that opportunity. You know, uh, uh, you know, with the exceptions Bob Cousy and Tiny Archibald, but Tiny was six one, and Bob was over six feet, I believe. So you you talked about Steph Curry and the Warriors a, a bit, and you know one of the big stories, of course, for this season has been you know a great superstar like Kevin Durant fitting in with you know a great team like the Warriors with a superstar like Steph Curry, and uh, you know you had two somewhat similar situations like that in your career. You know you went to Philly when the leagues merged um, with uh, George McGinnis there in 1977. They had a, a very good, not not a great level team until you got there, and then you were kind of on the other side of that when Moses Malone came over to the, was traded to the 76ers in 1983 um what were some of the challenges for you you know integrating another great player in those situations and and what did you and the team do to to make them work well actually there was a third situation when charles barkley came and you know the last three years of my career were the first three years of his career mm-hmm. and he truly was a great player and um I, I think it's part the responsibility of the uh, the coach and, and the captain of the team, and I was the captain of the team, and then the organization itself. When I when I first went to Philly, and they had George McGinnis and Doug Collins, and Doug was first pick in the '73 draft, um, so they had uh, All Star caliber players, uh, great players, and the general manager you know, pretty much just told me straight out, you know, I came in averaging, you know, 27, 28 points a game. And, you know, I was the best rebounder on my team. And, uh, you know, suddenly, I'm, you know, taking 14 shots and playing the wing and I, you know, don't know where to hit a basket. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my stats were reflective of that. And, uh, Pat Williams, you know, I had plenty of meetings with him, and he said, "All right, you know, we're not playing for stats. We're playing to we're playing to win the title, and it's going to take you know everybody playing defense and balanced offensive attack." So my scoring average was twenty one or twenty two, and George's was twenty twenty or twenty one, and Doug's was nineteen or twenty. So we had three twenty point scorers. Um, with each of us being capable of, you know, having 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 point games, but but it didn't happen that year because we had balance and uh, and it was discussed. Uh, this is this is what we're going to do, and uh, that got us all the way to the finals. And unfortunately, when we played Portland, they had more balance than we had, <laughs> and we probably had higher scores. But they had they had more balance, and um, you know we have to admit it now they had better coaching. So when you came to the NBA after the merger, um, you know what did you feel like you had to prove, or, or was there pressure on you? Now you're you're coming to this new league, you're expected to uh, you know really be the face of the league. I mean, even in the ABA, you were despite the you not having a national television and um, you know you you not necessarily being on TV a whole lot. You were you know a, a, a superstar in the sport despite being in the smaller league. Did you feel like you had to? Was there something you had to demonstrate there, or was that not really an issue for you? Well, it was an issue. Um, Clearly, it was an issue, and it was an issue to, uh, you know, to deal with the way that I pretty much approach most of uh, the problems or issues that, you know, I face in life, uh, you know, try to keep a level head, 
you know, understand, you know, what the various options are and then choose. And, uh, and I chose to, you know, be a team player to go along with what, you know, our general manager, uh, wanted, uh, and, uh, having experienced, uh, a couple of championships in the ABA and being different, you know, the, the first time around in 74, we probably had a little more balance. And, but in, in 76, it was like, okay, you got to take the game over and for us to get out of here. And we need one or more of the other guys to step up as John Williamson often did for us. So, um, so I followed the script and, uh, probably took a lot of criticism because the things that I didn't do, you know, part of the public thought that I couldn't do it. And until we got to that final game against Portland and, you know, which, you know, basically tried to take over the game after we were, you know, losing and brought us back to the break. And then Gene you called a play for George McGinnis at the end of the game when I had 43 points. <laughs> and uh, I think they had a better coach. <laughs> so the 11 years in Philly, you know, was always playing catch-up. It was always playing, um, okay, you know, prove prove yourself. And for my own sanity, you know, I think I kind of, it was just one season when I, when I said, you know what? I'm not a 20-point scorer. I'm not a eight-rebound guy or whatever. I, you know, I can do more, and I got to worry about me. So I went and, you know, averaged better than 25 points a game and, you know, won the MVP award. And I really received a lot of uh, satisfaction in winning the MVP award, but after, after that it was kind of like, okay, let's go back to, you know, what what's going to be deemed necessary by our general manager and others to to win the title, and um, and that's how we played. And you know, for better or for worse, um, you know, I look back on it, and I and I and I realize that part of the reason I probably was able to play basketball for 16 years was because I didn't wear myself out and I didn't play you know hero ball each and every year. Uh, I played within a team structure, and, uh, and 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 understood and adapted to a role that uh, warranted some sacrifice. So you you and the Sixers had some um, you, some dogged playoff battles in the late seventies. You mentioned the Blazers, of course. Um, you know, with uh, the Bullets, with Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes, uh, the Spurs with some of your former Nets teammates and George Gervin, uh, the Rockets with your future uh, teammates uh, Moses Malone, and the uh, the Celtics, of course, uh, in seventy seven, coming off the title with Havlicek and Cowens. Um, any um, yeah. memories of some you know of, of any of those uh, stand? out to you as you know particularly interesting or tough playoff series for you yeah they were they were all tough no no we didn't breeze well they maybe when we had moses and you know we breezed through the whole nba <laughs> right uh you know 65 17 and 12 and 1 in the playoffs that that probably could be considered easy but took a lot of uh, work sacrifice and you know and, and unity uh, more so than desperation or anything, but I, I, I reflect back on the uh, Boston Celtics series when we were two back-to-back years. We were up three-one 
and they came storming back and made it 3-3 and uh, and knocked us out in, in 80, 80, uh, 80, 81. And then in 82, we knocked them out. And, uh, you know, those those were probably the most gut-wrenching gut of all the series that I remember. Uh, just the fact that, you know, there was such a great rivalry between Boston and Philadelphia, I think even greater than Boston-L.A. And, um, and whoever succeeded in the East, you know, was probably going to be the favorite uh, to win if your team was intact because we played, you know, we played hardcore, hard-nosed basketball. And, you know, it seemed like every time, you know, we got by Boston, you know, there was, you know, somebody with a sprain here or an ache there or broken this. And, um, you know, the same with them because uh, it, it seemed as though East was tougher than the West back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not the case now. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, I, so I think this seven-game, um, you know, series that led us to the, uh, you know, championship round in '82 uh, was uh, was probably the toughest, but yet the most rewarding uh, because we we ended up winning the seven game in Bo- seventh game in Boston, going away. So you spent so many years, obviously, in Philly, and the, the team, you know, changed a lot from the late '70s into the early to mid '80s. Um, can you talk about just some of the camaraderie between, you know, your your teammates who were guys that um, you really enjoyed playing with, and, and you know, and and got along with, and and just really, you know, some of the guys who were um, maybe don't necessarily get their due, but were, you know, obviously important parts of that team. Yeah. Yeah, when I arrived, uh, you know, we had uh, we had the Motley Crew, <laughs> we had uh, Jelly Jelly Bean, Joe Bryant, and World Be Free, and Daryl Dawkins from Thunderdome, and we had Steve Mix, and uh, Mike Dunleavy, uh, Terry Furlow, Henry Bibby, uh, George McGinnis, Doug Collins. And uh, the other guard, uh, uh, Bibby and Collins were in the backcourt. Oh yeah, we had uh, Harvey Catchings right. and Caldwell Jones. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know that was that was our roster, and you know it really looked like a roster that, if kept together, probably could win the NBA championship because we ended up winning fifty-five games. And, you know, went all the way to the finals and really just beat a red-hot, I mean, lost to a red-hot Portland team that, you know, was a one-and-done champion as, as well. And um, and I think, you know, if our team stayed intact and uh, the ship got righted, we would get better, not get worse. But, you know, we broke up the team after one year. And... Um, you know, for me personally, I mean, I understood with the coaching change and Billy Cunningham coming in, you know, he really needed to have his type of team uh, play. Um, and um, and that's what we got, you know. We, George got traded and, and uh, World Be Free got traded. And uh, uh, Dunleavy got traded. <laughs> and we ended up... Um, Getting in return, you know, Bobby Jones, who was, who was an excellent addition 
uh, for us. Uh, we ended up getting Roy Henson for free. And uh, with uh, Jelly Bean, who went to Houston, uh, who do we get? Forgot who we got. But um, yeah, so we transitioned, and that's when I think the uh, the Bullets were at their best, uh, the Washington Bullets at the time, and uh, they had Elvin Hayes and and uh, Wes Unseld, uh, Bobby Dandridge, and they, they had some really really good players. Um, and they became the challenge to try to overcome in the East, more so than Boston. Um, and they went to the finals, you know, back-to-back years before we, uh, you know, righted our ship and ended up playing Los Angeles in 1980 and 82 and 83, you know, going to the finals three out of four years. Uh, so so overall, I mean, I look at the um, the four going to the final four years out of 11 and going to the conference final seven years out of 11 as being a not insignificant accomplishment in the NBA. So um, shifting gears, uh, when you took part in the the first NBA dunk contest during All-Star Weekend in 1984, um, did you have any reservations about that? You know, you're, you're, you're 34, I believe, at that time. You're trying to live up to this legend that you created in the uh, 76 dunk contest. Did you have any, you know, worries about uh, trying to, you, you know, um, keep up with the legend, so to speak, in um, in that performance? Well, I thought I was going to win, uh, and if I had missed that last dunk, I think I probably would have won because I, my my creativity and my variation was a lot uh, better than Larry Nance's because he kept doing the same dunk, you know, <laughs> just from different angles. <laughs> Every time he did the same dunk four times, and I was like, well, that's the same dunk. So, you know, and even though he executed it well, um, you know, I, and I had my cohorts on the sideline, my two sons and the ball boy, putting ideas in my head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I I probably tried something that I hadn't done before, and ended up missing. And you know, there's there was a extreme penalty for missing. So making it to the final and going down to the last dunk was a consolation. But I, I really thought I could have won that dunk contest at, even at age 34. Because mm-hmm. you know, once you're out there competing, nobody cares how old you are. Right. <laughs> if you, right. Either you're in or you're out. Yeah. <laughs> So you're one of very few uh, NBA players, obviously Kobe last year, John Havlicek, uh, Kareem, and Bob Cousy, maybe a handful of others who have had a retirement tour where, you know, you were honored at all the various NBA cities with gifts and, you know, your your career was, um, you know, your claim career was, you know, honored by the fans. Um, how did you feel about that? And do you have any, you know, particular great memories of, of that last season? Uh, the, the farewell tour was amazing. Nothing short uh, of that. Uh, and the fact that I ended up, um, you know, starting the tour and having to play after being recognized and being honored was extremely stressful, believe me. So, so when I broke my <laughs> finger... <laughs> And I had to go 20 games. I missed 20 games that year. Most of them missed cumulatively in multiple years. And uh, and I went to the fair on the farewell tour. I still traveled with the team, 
and enjoyed the recognitions. It was it was actually fun to be over there in suit and tie and uh and not have to play. And every now and then I go out, I shoot a couple free throws uh while the team was warming up. And uh it, it was a unique year. I just I just you know, I decided in Cleveland of all places the season before that next year would be my last year. So after 15 years, I mean, I knew, you know, the, the pain in the knees and the ankles and the, you know, psychological stuff that you had to deal with. And, you know, it wasn't wasn't as much fun as it had been in earlier seasons. And, um, and I knew one more year was probably all I could take. So we wanted to make that one sweet 16. And it was. And the tour... The tour made it even. That was the icing on the cake. There's a lot, uh, of course. You know, your your battles with the uh, Lakers and Celtics uh, in the 1980s are pretty legendary. But one team that you uh, had a lot of playoff battles with was the Milwaukee Bucks. And I was wondering if you could yeah. uh, share any memories you had of battling the Bucks throughout the 80s, and you know, some of the players that you enjoyed playing against. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think I probably have more respect for the Bucks players and the Bucks organization than any other organization um, that we have previously mentioned or could mention. Um, you know, Sidney Moncrief and uh, Marcus Johnson and Mickey Johnson and Bob Lanier and Junior Bridgman, Quinn Buckner, you know, uh, such a core group of guys who uh, you know, just respected so much and, and, and the fact that year in and year out, um, you know, we would look at the statistics and we'd say, wow, these, these teams are so evenly matched and the team that seemed to have the uh, home court advantage in the playoffs, maybe one loss, you know, each win three times at each other's, you know, uh, court. We end up three and three, and the scoring differential is something like four points, six points, ten points or less Mm -hmm. over six games, which is scary. Um, And, you know, it was was kind of befitting that my last game in the NBA was against the Milwaukee Bucks, and uh, we played the playoff series in which they were clearly the better team in my last year. And, you know, the last the last game was walking out of their stadium and those fans, uh, you know, recognizing what I had given them for, you know, those 11 years. And it kind of started like it ended because I was the MVP in that first All-Star game in Milwaukee. And those fans booed because the West team had won. <laughs> <laughs> And I was sitting on the bench at the end of the game, <laughs> and I won the MVP. <laughs> uh, so, so it's a little bit of poetic, poetic justice that you know they cheered me that night, and um, and I got a chance to say goodbye to basketball. Well, uh, so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you, and it, it was just a really great experience for me. Hey, thank you.
Hope everyone enjoyed the uh, interview with uh, Julius Irving. It was obviously, as I mentioned before, just a great experience for me. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, what we talked about. And uh, thanks again so much for all the support. Uh, You can find us at fansided.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, if you want to uh, leave a rating and review, tell people how much you like the show. We would so much appreciate that. So thanks for listening. We're back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.